So we've been talking about the church through these past weeks from the book of Acts, asking the question, why church? Why did God establish a church? Why would I want to be part of the church? How do I be part of the church? And what is God up to in the church? What purpose is He achieving in the, per- in the church? And I want to communicate to young people as well as to all ages the importance of the church in the Scriptures and how the Scripture says Jesus loved the church and gave Himself for the church. And the church is not dispensable, it is indispensable to the plan and purpose of God among humans. So we are gathered here as the church of Jesus Christ. And the building itself we sometimes call a church, but the real church is the people inside. It's us who comprise a church, the gathered assembly of believers. Now we're going to take up the book of Ephesians this month. We'll start it June 25th, so that's three weeks from now. You can be reading ahead if you want to in two weeks. We'll be distributing to you daily devotionals that are from the text of the book of Ephesians. We're going to divide the book into amazing grace and messy grace, all right? Because sometimes it's just messy living out grace, and there's lots of things that just don't end up neat and clean. So the first part of it, in God's amazing grace, we're going to talk about this grace of the Lord Jesus and the purpose of God He had in establishing His church and sending His Son and gathering us into the body of believers, what He's up to in that, and that's the first three chapters, and the next uh, three chapters will deal with messy grace, how we work that out in the practical relationships of life. So we're going to be talking about grace, live in Grace will be our theme in two different ways as we go through this wonderful letter from the Apostle Paul. And we'll follow up why church with live in grace. Today I'm in Acts chapter 15. I hope you fall in love with this passage. It's a historical passage done by Luke. Some people believe that Luke might have been from Antioch and one of those first pagans, Gentiles, pure Gentiles, who trusted Jesus as Savior. And maybe we even have an eyewitness account of this conference in Jerusalem where Luke was maybe part of that group. We don't know for sure, but I hope that you'll read through the entire chapter and think about all the things that are being said in this chapter. It is the culmination of a discussion that begins with the salvation of Cornelius, a Gentile, though he was a God-fearer. He believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so when we get to chapter 15 now, this has been stewing for some time. And last week we saw that there were people in Antioch who were pure Gentiles, no Jewish lineage at all, not God-fearers, not proselytes, just pagans who heard the good news of Jesus Christ and believed in Jesus. And they sent Barnabas from Jerusalem up to Antioch to check on things and see Really, is God going to save pure pagans? I mean, what's happening there? And when Barnabas saw it, he knew it was God's hand. He was very glad. He encouraged those believers and rejoiced with them. And so now we have a council going on in Acts chapter 15 where the big guys are going to be there. Paul and Peter and James, the half-brother of Jesus and pastor of the Jerusalem church and author of the book of James, these pillars are there to discuss what's going on in the church. These different people coming together in the church, the confluence of Jews and Gentiles in the church at Antioch. And I'm going to start with verse 5 in Acts 15. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party 
of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of the Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophet are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. Everybody has affiliations. We are born into a family. We learn in the family loyalty and love and these very powerful connections that make us part of the family. We discover in our family and the small group around us as we grow up how the world works and we adopt a way of life that we assume is the best way possible. Why would we receive it from our forefathers if it weren't the very best possible way for a human being to live on the planet? And as we mature and grow and get out on our own, we seek affiliations that reinforce these values and perspective that we live and, and inherit from our families and our clan. Consider for a moment that God sends his son into this kind of world where this kind of process of affiliation takes place. How does the son of God affiliate? How does he join groups? What groups does he join and why? We read the story of Jesus and are interested to discover that he never identified as a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a Herodian 
or a zealot. He never identified as any, none of his self-identification is about these existing groups of his time. In fact, he's more radical than that. His chief affiliation, his deepest affiliation, the commitment that he expects to be the highest and the greatest is with these 12 people that he chooses as his disciples. And he says to them and to others who want to follow him, you got to hate your father and mother and sister and brother or you cannot be my disciple. What is he saying? He is saying to his disciples that all prior affiliations and connections of your life are now subject and secondary to the one you have established with me. That's what he's saying. And so they come to Jesus with these varieties of connections. But Jesus insists that every one of them be put under his lordship so that the chief and highest affiliation of their life is they are a follower of Jesus. Now, Paul the Apostle got this, and we'll see as he introduces himself in Ephesus. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. It is the way he identifies in the world. And so we have this great council. And all the people who have been touched by the good news of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, and they are believers, they're being represented in the council. And there is here a group who are identified by Luke as the party of the Pharisees. These are the chief moralists in the room, legalists in the council. And they stand up to say the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. They're speaking out of the depths of their soul. This is how they have understood the world from the very beginning, from the time they could speak. And they have immersed themselves in this world. They became experts in the law. The party of the Pharisees sought to purify the religion of Abraham so that they kept those laws precisely as they were supposed to. And people admired them for the diligence and discipline of their religious activity. And when they say people must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses, they are talking about the law of Moses, for heaven's sakes, the Ten Commandments and other things that attend to it. Who can criticize the Ten Commandments? And so out of this affiliation, they come to the council. Now listen. This is an affiliation that began before they met Jesus. All right? This is part of their Jewish heritage and their Jewish religion. This affiliation they have as the party of the Pharisees. But it is so important. It is so much the best way to live on the planet that they feel even though these Gentiles have believed in Jesus, they, they just must do something else. They've got to do something else. They, they really need to be circumcised. And they need to keep the law of Moses. In other words, they need to come into the old covenant. And they need to make sure that they keep 
the law. Now, there is more at stake in their statement than just what's going to happen to the Gentiles, all right? Because if I was a Gentile sitting there, I'd be thinking, what? I just heard the good news about Jesus, and I believed in him, and now you want me to become a Jew? They were not affiliated with the Jews. They they didn't know the old covenant. These pure pagans in Antioch, they may have never heard of these things. And you want me to become a Jew? You want me to keep the law of Moses? I just responded to the good news of Jesus Christ. He was dead. He was buried. He rose again from the dead. And and he invites us to trust him. That's what we did. Oh, no. No, there's something else you got to do. The party of the Pharisees said, you must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And they put in jeopardy not just the Gentile who had believed in Antioch. They put in jeopardy the gospel itself. The good news itself is at risk in this statement. Because the good news is all about Jesus. Last week we saw these folks were called Christians first at Antioch. They weren't called Abrahamans or Isaacans or Davidians. They are Christ ones. They are Christianos. That's how they were identified in Antioch. And this identity is supposed to reign supreme in their heart. And now a party has come to say, no, even though you've identified with Jesus and received the good news, you've got to behave like Jews. You must be inducted into the Jewish religion. You've got to keep the law of Moses. If they had permitted this statement to become a reality in the church, they would have lost the heart of the gospel. And folks, anytime we add a cultural barrier to our presentation of the gospel, we are at risk of polluting, perverting, and losing the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is very simple. It is for all who come All who repent of their sin and trust Jesus as Savior, they come into the family of God by faith. It is as simple as it can be. That's how it works. But if we say to people subtly or even overtly, as these folks did, oh, no, wait, you must do this other thing. You've got to do this to be a real Christian. You've got to keep these other laws. And maybe you have a little set of laws. It's maybe not long. Maybe just four or five instead of ten, you know. But you've got to do this, too, to really be a Christian. What we're doing is we're trying to make people more like us than more like Jesus. All right? The gospel comes so that a life may be transformed into the image of God's Son, not into my image or your image. And when we set these cultural barriers up about anything, whether they're dress or or how we sing, or what we do, they're part of our culture. We inherited it from our family. We think it's the way it ought to be. But if we make it essential to the gospel, we pollute 
the good news that was given to us. That's why when James here at the end of this discussion, when he looks back at it, he says, we are not going to put, we're not going to make it difficult for these Gentiles to be saved. We're just not going to make it difficult for them. We're not going to put up this barrier to them. And I think oftentimes the church of Jesus Christ has been guilty of supposing that if we make a people somewhere in the world look and talk and sound more like us, then they'll be more Christian. When for 2,000 generations, people all over the world have looked very unlike us in all kinds of ways. And yet the church of Jesus Christ has flourished in their culture. When we send missionaries out to all the countries, and I think we have some 160 countries where missionaries that we support are now working. When we send them out, they are instructed. You are a messenger of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what you do in this culture where we're sending you. We want you to exalt the Savior. Do not compromise that by political activity where you go. Now, there are times when the gospel of Jesus Christ will clash with a value in a culture. If a culture is sacrificing children under their gods and some of them become Christian, they're going to insist that we not do that, all right? Because it is obviously against the will of God. And, And when people start believing in Jesus, they begin to change their viewpoint on things. I went to an island in the Pacific uh, several years ago where the first missionaries were killed and eaten by cannibals. I came back saying, thank you, God, for the courage of those men and women who went to Papua New Guinea, shared the good news of Jesus Christ at the risk of their own lives, were martyred for the sake of the gospel, but planted it in that culture where they responded wholeheartedly to the gospel and eventually thousands of Papuans trusted Christ. And today there are Papuans who believe Jesus all over that island. It is the religion of Papua New Guinea now is Christianity. How did that happen? Somebody went in there to just share the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news eventually changed that culture. But the primary responsibility of any believer in Jesus in any culture in the world is to make sure that your affiliation with Jesus reigns supreme over every other affiliation in your life. Peter was so emboldened to say in one of his letters, I don't know how his dad took this. I don't know how his grandpa took this. But he talked about the empty way of life handed down to us by our forefathers. Now that I am older, when I write things about my family of origin, I think about how my mother will take them. I had one fellow in our church said, well, I'll support that after my mother dies. (laughs) You know, I mean... I think about how they're going to take it. How how would my father feel about me saying this? Well, Peter says it. He says it right out loud. He says it in front of everybody. He says, some people inherit an empty way of life from their 
parents and their grandparents, their clan and their family. It's, it's a futile way of life. It doesn't have an eternal perspective. It's, it's not full and flourishing. Some people inherit that. Look, when you trust in Jesus as Savior, mother, father, sister, brother, in comparison to your loyalty and love for Jesus, that love's got to be like hate. He must reign supreme in your heart, whatever you learned, previous to finding him and knowing him. So, the party of the Pharisees stand up and they want to make everybody Jews. And Peter stands up and makes a great speech that Luke records here that we've just read. And Peter says, God made a choice. God already made a choice. What was God's choice? God made a choice that by my lips the message of the gospel would be heard and believed by Gentiles. God already made the choice. And God confirmed that choice by sending the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. And God knows their hearts. And he sent the Holy Spirit there just as he did with us at the beginning. They were saved just like we are. And Peter's response is, no, 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 we're not going to require Christians to adopt these Jewish cultural practices. Why would we put a yoke on them that neither we nor our fathers could bear? And what he is saying is, these cultural norms that we are passing down, we don't even keep them. We don't even keep them. You say, oh no, I keep the Ten Commandments. I know, you're thinking about adultery, stealing, murder. He didn't murder anybody this week, I hope. You're thinking, I'm a pretty good person, you know. I got those three. Didn't take the name of the Lord in vain, maybe. You remember the Sabbath? Okay, you're doing pretty good. You're up to five. How do you do on number ten? You know, Paul says, I could have been such a good legalist and law keeper. If the law had just not said, thou shalt not covet. And I get to number 10, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's stuff. Has to do with the neighbor, see. And I get to number 10 and the law just whacks me down and slays me. And Paul, a Pharisee, part of the party of the Pharisees. Realized after trusting Jesus as Savior that even he, a Pharisee of Pharisees, could not keep the law and was dead before the law. Why put on the yoke of the, the, on the Gentiles' neck a yoke that neither we nor our fathers could bear? And Peter says, no way, no way. And I want you to say, no way. When somebody says to you, yeah, but they got to worship on the seventh day or they're not really Christians, you say, no way. God made every day holy. Yeah, but they can't eat pork or they can't do these other things or they're not really Christians. No, God made everything pure. When he created it, we do not have special days that identify us or, I, or diets that identify us or clothing that we wear that identify us as Jesus followers. We are Jesus followers because we have thrown ourselves upon his mercy 
asked for his forgiveness and trusted him as the crucified and risen Savior. That's it. Hallelujah. Say, I am grateful for the courage of Peter and James who stand up to say, it is by grace. He says, no, it is by the grace. You got to get this, okay? It is by the grace of the Lord Jesus that we, who's he talking about? That we, I mean, has he got a frog in his pocket? <laughs> who's he talking about? Who is he talking about? He's talking about Jews. He's talking about Jews. I know some people that want to teach that Jews have a separate road to heaven. Now, I wish I had some Jewish blood in me, but I told you last week, nada. Okay? And I hear people say, no, Jews get saved a different way. <laughs> Peter says right here, no, it is by the grace of the Lord Jesus that we are saved just like them. Who's the them? It's the Gentiles. Peter's setting up this contrast, and he's saying, no, Jews are saved just like Gentiles are saved. It is through Jesus that we are saved. Now, Jesus said this as plain as it can be in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Just a simple as that. And in the very first sermons, the first disciples of Jesus said, there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. That's, that's Acts 4, 12. That's just what it says there. And immediately you begin to think, well, what about the Jews who don't believe in Jesus? And what about Muslims who don't believe in Jesus? And what about atheists who are nice people but they don't believe in Jesus? Look, we are not the judge, okay? We can't tell anybody who goes to heaven and who doesn't. I, you know, sometimes I wonder about me. God, God has the sovereign wisdom of the ages, and he is the judge of all the earth, not us. But we can solidly affirm that God who set in motion his plan for salvation back in Abraham's day 4,000 years ago, Revealed himself through a chosen people through those years that all nations of the earth might be blessed. Culminating that showing of himself in the sending of his son Jesus who was fully God and fully man and lived a perfect life among us and was the highest and greatest expression, the brightness of God's or. Uh, Character and the exact representation of his nature. That's who Jesus was. All right? And God culminated his revelation in Jesus, who laid down his life and died on the cross for us sinners. I know it boggles the mind that God would do that for us. And yet it is how he loved us. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. And God worked out this plan through the ages. And so I know that when I get to heaven, everybody I see 
will be there only because Jesus died on the cross for them. That's it. Don't get worked into judging people individually. Just say, I know one thing. God sent his son Jesus to rescue us from our sin. And that's how we get to heaven. God purposed this a long time ago. It was God's purpose that he was working out in the world. God made the choice and then he intervened. James says, he intervened to save the Gentiles and make a name for himself. So what God was doing was two important things in the death of his son and his resurrection. First of all, Jesus was the son of David. And he was the promised one, the anointed one. He's King Jesus. And he restored the fallen tent of David's house. God said there's going to be a king in the lineage of David that will reign eternally and Jesus is the one. So God has fulfilled his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to David and all of the Old Testament prophets and saints by sending his son Jesus who is the anointed one and restores David's fallen tent. But he does it in a way that is worldwide. Just like the prophets knew, just like the covenant of Abraham said, through you, not only your family, but all the nations of the earth will be blessed, Abraham. And so God accomplishes his name among the nations through the promised one, Jesus, whom he sends. He restores both the fallen tent of David and he takes the gospel to the nations that they might bear the name of God. So how do we treat one another? Well, God did not discriminate between us and them. Let there be no us and them in the church. Let us not discriminate between us and them. I don't, you know, it's impossible to get away from the language because it's just who we are. We are affiliated with families. We have people that we love. We are part of social groups. We use the terminology, but we need to be careful that we do not discriminate between us and them. They, everybody, has the same affliction. They are sinners. Everybody has the same remedy. Jesus is the remedy. Everybody is the object of the love of God. See, we're all saved the same way because God loves us all. And so the dignity of every person, wherever they came from, whatever they looked, whoever they are, the dignity of every person is elevated because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God has exalted his name among the nations. And the nations gather in this house of worship week after week. And our great diversity and all the different stories of our backgrounds is evidence that the gospel works for every people, tribe, tongue, and nation on the earth. And God calls us then to the hard work of not being us and them, but being brothers and sisters together 
in the family of God. So I ask you, have you been saved through the grace of Jesus as you have placed your faith in him? It is through the grace of Jesus that we are saved. That's it. Everybody is. Have you been saved through the grace of Jesus? Have you recognized your need of rescue? That you are a sinner in need of a Savior? Have you repented of your sin and received Christ as Lord? Has that happened to you? Because what Peter speaks about here is what rescued Cornelius and his family. What rescued him and his brother Andrew. And what continues to rescue people by the millions and even billions through the generations as they have trusted in Jesus, God's Son and our Savior, dead, buried, and risen again. Bow with me, please. Someone in the room has been contemplating your spiritual condition and your future. And as we pray together and as we bow our heads together, something's going on inside of you. You know you have a need. Maybe you come to, came to this place today with a sense of guilt or shame upon your life and, and you're wondering what to do about it. I can tell you now, Jesus is the answer for your life. He died on the cross for your sin to deliver you from that guilt and shame and give you a home in heaven. And if you will right now just say, Lord, I want you in my life. Forgive me for my sin. Help me to be the person you want me to be. If you'll place your faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord, God will bring a new day in you. Transformation will occur spiritually. God, I pray today for the person who needs most to acknowledge you, to receive Jesus as Savior and forgiveness of sin, that that will happen in this house of worship, in this moment. God, I pray for others who need to take steps of faith toward you, that, God, they will do it. Lord, hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.